Hello and welcome to Weird Together. I'm Brennan Storr, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Camo and I'm muted. <laughs> I'm Joseph Camo and I'm host of the Cardinal Rule. And this is the show where we talk about the latest and greatest in independent horror films, except for this episode where we're talking about what was basically the number one film in America at the time, but it's mostly because I love it and Joseph finally watched it, so I wanted to talk about it. Right, right. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, how are you? I am doing really well. We were talking a little bit before uh, some good things going on in my life, kind of in love and stuff like that. So, you know, obviously it's all butterflies and ooey gooey stuff for me, but I'm doing well. How are you, Mr. Storm? Gross. Gross. <laughs> Girls have cooties. <laughs> Hope my wife isn't watching this. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good, Joseph. I'm good. Thank you very much. I, I am settled now into here into my new place. I'm, I, I, I forgot to not put on a black shirt for the stream, which is annoying, but uh, uh, so it goes. I'll remember for next time. I'm very excited to talk about this film because uh, we'll get into it, but I, I really like this movie. And when you mentioned that you had seen it, when we were talking the other day, I thought, well, no, we're just, we're just going to talk about that because I haven't seen anything good enough. I, watched, I rented this one, which is going to be like my pick for the stream. And it turned out to be such a piece of crap. I won't say what it was, but it turned out to be such a piece of crap that I thought, nope, nope. And when you mentioned Barbarian, I thought... Sold. Sold. <laughs> Real quick, we got Rin Lemieux. Hello, good sirs. Hello, Rin. Aren't you in it for the cooties? I mean, that's a fair question. That's fair. Yeah, no, the, the, answer, is, the answer is yes. I mean, my lawyer is vigorously shaking his head, but no, that's, a, that's okay. <laughs> yes. Here for the cooties. I, and I'm also here to talk about Zach Kreger's Barbarian. Now, Joseph, of course, before we can talk about Barbarian, which, as I mentioned, came out, um, well, it came out about a year ago now, came out in September of 2022. I just checked my letterbox diary because I'm a nerd like that. I saw it on September 30th, 2022. And I really, really want to talk about this movie. But before we do, we got to unpack the baggage. All right, Joseph. So as we like to say, you never go into any movie completely blind. There's always some kind of baggage you bring with it. What was your baggage going into Barbarian? So I didn't have the familiarity you'd had with it, uh, which is a recurring theme on this, on what we do here. That could um, be the subtitle you know, of the show. Right, right. So, you know, I was, I was really just looking for a really good horror film to watch and kind of did a little searching for some of the best horror films that were available on some of the streaming platforms I, I watch. And this one came up and, you know, I read a, a quick review that didn't get into any spoilers. And what I knew was that it was well-reviewed and that there were some unexpected turns that it was kind of hard to explain what it was without giving it away. It was really, it was just like, hey, this film is really good. We can't say much more. Just trust us. It's going to kind of surprise you. So I was in, I was in the bag for that. that. That's about it for my baggage though in that film. Okay. So for me, it, it, was, it was similar. I mean, I should start off by saying Barbarian became a phenomenon. You know, this is a, a, a film budgeted about four and a half million that went on to gross 45 worldwide. And that's unqualified success, no matter how you slice it. It was the number one movie in America. I, I think in its second weekend, it only dropped 30% which is unusual for horror films. Usually horror films have a big opening weekend and then drop anywhere from 50 to 70%. Uh, but no, it had a really strong hold. And it, again, it did really well. I saw it end of September. I had just moved to Montreal. And uh, at the time, my foot, because when I moved to Montreal, I was suffering from really bad plantar fasciitis. Uh, so my foot was taped up. I was still waiting for orthotics, but I desperately wanted to see it. So I took an Uber to the theater uh, and I caught a double feature of Pearl and Barbarian. I saw Pearl first and then Barbarian. Of course, Ty West's Pearl. I was so, I, well, mostly some of this is talked about stuff. Like I was so impressed with Barbarian that I remember that night as being magical, despite the fact I had to limp home because I thought, oh, well, surely I can just walk home. My foot's not that, no, my foot was that bad. I'm an idiot. Um, and that set me back a ways, but it, I, even despite all that pain and unpleasantness, I still remember that night so fondly, but again, that's, that's not baggage. That's just me. Uh, it's just me crowing about barbarian. Uh, so baggage, I knew it was good. I knew I'd heard the reviews were really positive. I had avoided spoilers much like yourself. I'd even avoided trailers. 
I just knew there was this film coming out called Barbarian. It had really uh, done very well in the festival circuit. I was hyped to see it. And, and that can go either way, right? Hype can really bite you in the ass. Uh, you know, I remember I was so hyped for um, Blair Witch Project. And that turned out to be, I, I've never enjoyed Blair Witch Project. Never once. Even when it first came out, I saw it in cinemas in 1999. Just didn't do anything for me. Probably because my expectations were too high. And going into Barbarian, I don't know that I had high expectations. I just knew I'd been told to expect something special. Uh, and I was not disappointed. But, of course, we'll talk about that in the Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter. Two men leave? What did you think of Barbarian? Oh, I loved it. It, it was a fantastic film. The pivots were really interesting. It did a good job of kind of, and I'll get into this a little bit. There's some places where it sort of had some decoys, so to speak, that kind of set you up to think it was going to be one kind of film. And then it became something very different. And there were some of those things I thought were really well done. There were, there were some casting that I thought was masterful that we'll get into. But altogether, yeah, this was an outstanding film. Really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I, like I said, I saw it that night. And I was hooked. And watching it again, I somehow I hadn't seen it again since the first time. But watching it today for the stream, I was just, again, hooked immediately. You know, the opening in the Brightmoor neighborhood of Detroit, which actually it wasn't. Most of the film was shot in Bulgaria with a handful of, of exteriors shot in Detroit, in the Brightmoor neighborhood, which has seen better days. But right away, it was just, it was so moody. And it kept teasing you with the character of, um, I cannot remember her name, played by... Uh, Tess? Tess, yeah, played by Georgina Campbell. She turns up at this Airbnb, and it, it's sort of like a checklist of your worst nightmares. Mm-hmm. You're, you're in a, a dangerous, very quiet, empty neighborhood. You don't know the area. It's raining. You're totally alone. All, it's late. All you want to do is go to bed, and you can't get into your Airbnb, and no one's picking up the phone. And then you realize there's someone else in there. And not knowing what the plot was, I kept waiting to see what the story was going to be. I was waiting, you know, of course, the character of Keith is in the home. And Keith is played by Bill Skarsgård. And Bill Skarsgård, I mean, he played it. He's a very intimidating... Pennywise. Pennywise. Sorry, Pennywise, thank you, yeah. He's a very intimidating looking guy. He's quite tall. He's quite gangly. He's kind of got a very striking face. The whole time I was just on tenterhooks, waiting to see where it was going to go. And as you said, uh, it, it stayed that way right till the end. There were times watching it, both times actually, where I thought, Jesus, I can't believe they did that. That's rare. You know, with the amount of movies I watch, that is a rare thing. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about Keith, because I, I thought... There were some things about that character in particular that were really interesting to me in what it did for the plot and what the casting of Bill Skarsgård, Skarsgård did for the character. Um, because we've talked about the pivots, right? And I think one of the things that makes the film work so well and makes the pivots work so well is the, the character of Keith being set as sort of a decoy. You think up until the point that he's attacked and killed, that maybe he's the antagonist, right? He's got this whole thing set up and he's got the basement with the camera and the, the, the creepy and, you know, and just, and what's, so, so that hit him as a plot device, so to speak, his character, I thought was really well utilized to set up that pivot. And then when you see what is actually going on, you know, with, with the character of Frank and everything, what's really going on in the basement, because they so pulled you in, to Keith being some sort of creepy, some sort of hostile kind of a story going along. You, they pull you into that, and then the pivot impacts you. But what I think, in terms of the casting of Bill Skarsgård that works so well, and why he was such a great uh, choice for this character, is he's just naturally creepy enough that he could play the character of Keith straight up, and it feels uneasy, unsettling, right? So he didn't have to play creepy. He just played him as a, just a normal guy and just the very Bill Skarsgård-ness of the actor accomplished that subtly. And to me, that was just a chef's kiss part of this film. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, as someone who goes out of their way when necessary to make people feel safe, you know, for example, if, if, I'm, if I'm walking late at night and there's a woman walking in front of me, I will cross the street so I'm not walking behind her because I know what that means. I know the, like the, the thought that can put in someone's head because I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm a heavy guy, you know, and if you're walking alone at night, you don't know that I'm mild-mannered podcaster Brennan Store. I'm just some fucking heavy bald guy who's tailing you, right? But I know that to a certain degree, there's only so much you can do to put someone at ease if you're a stranger. And I imagine being in that scenario, and he does, he does everything right, but still, you know, he cannot help but come across as sinister. You know, everything he does for her, again, right up to the end, right up to, to his murder, you think, because you start to want to like him, but there is this innate sense inside you that, no, I can't trust this person for all these reasons. Like Rin, Rin says, his face does a lot of the heavy lifting. Absolutely. To me, I think maybe to, to a, a casual viewer, maybe an underappreciated piece of this film was his casting and his role. The subtlety of what that accomplishes is just masterful. Real quick, I want to say hey to uh, Derek, who's hanging out with us. Thanks for being here. Hey, Derek. Green gentleman. I saw your comment so, on YouTube about uh, Dark Harvest. That's 100% your fault, my guy. <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah, absolutely love love what they did with Keith, right? And so absolutely. So another thing I want to talk about, a very different character that I thought was also interesting. And there's some interesting things about him and that's AJ. Yes. Right. So, you know, played by Justin Long, who, you know, is certainly a recognized face in film. And, you know, there's a couple things about him, but I'll just start with, I thought the jump to his character was interesting because it leaves you uncertain of Tessa's fate, right? You know, you just saw Keith gets his head smashed. And so you know what happened to Keith. But Tess is there screaming, and you don't know what happens to her. And it's interesting. It's sort of a, in a weird way, cleanses the palate or resets the mood. And it sort of clears the decks for the pivot to what's going on with AJ's arc. And then also allows to kind of clear the decks for the introduction of Frank and the backstory of what we learned is the mother, right? Which we don't know exactly what it is. We just know it's a, seems like a human-like being that killed Keith. So I thought that jump was very much a tonal shift, but I thought it worked in kind of just like, okay, let's clear the deck and we're resetting here for a minute and we're going to take you on a different journey. And then we weave it back together. And I can't tell you how much I appreciated that because one thing I don't enjoy in horror films is I don't enjoy, I, well, I, there's two things. I don't like cannibal movies. I have a really hard time watching anything that involves cannibalism. I find it upsetting. I know we, we had that one director, we did one of his films, I want to say Charlie, I think it was Charlie Steeds, the guy who did uh, Freeze. He had another film about uh, sort of like a grindhouse uh, 70s style film about cannibals. I tried, and I watched it and it's, it's good. I mean, he's good at what he does, but I couldn't engage with it because I find cannibal shit so upsetting. And the other thing is movies about people being imprisoned. If the whole film takes place in a single location that way i i just it bothers me and when i saw what obviously they build the suspense to such a fever pitch when keith dies i was concerned then that the film was going to be sustained imprisonment and torture in this basement and i was really not i was kind of bummed and then all of a sudden boom we're in malibu and the sun is shining and we're completely somewhere else and I was such a, it was, well, one, it was a surprise. Because again, I thought I knew which way the, now that I saw this happen, I saw the violence. Okay, I know this is how this is going to go. But then I didn't. And it, it completely changed, changed direction. And that really was, yeah, it, that set me up for this whole, like, okay, I really don't know what to expect. And from what I understand, the character was originally written for Zach Efron, the character of AJ. But uh, Efron turned it down. And they ended up casting Justin Long, so they kind of retooled the character a little bit. And I thought it was a, a sort of a perfect casting, because Long is, has, has for so long heh, been the nice guy. You know, he was always, at least in sort of the, the early 2000s, that was his thing. He was, he was the hero, the sort of the, uh, the dopey hero, the, the shrugging, the guy who's, too smart for, guy who's too smart for the room, you know. 
both in this, and I want to say, I think it's Neil Labute's House of Darkness. He plays such a toxic male scumbag uh, that I, I've got a whole new appreciation for him. Yeah. And, you know, that, that really kind of segues really nicely to kind of the, the sort of the second point I wanted to make about the character of AJ, because I also appreciate that the film managed to avoid a potential pitfall with his character. Because there's something they could have done with this that really could have been, to me, even kind of problematic. Because, you know, we're introduced to AJ and we see that, you know, he's essentially kind of, you know, accused of sexual assault. And, you know, as the details unfold and he at that party tells his side of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's the cringy is, is an understatement. It seems evident that he's got sort of that bro mentality that leads a lot of men to think they aren't doing anything wrong or at least convince themselves when they are clearly are. But then you have the introduction of the character of Frank, who is someone who's utterly depraved and monstrous and is at a whole other level doing something of the similar vein, right? Um, But much more monstrous. And the danger to me is that it would have been very easy for the evil of Frank to obfuscate or kind of obscure the shittiness of AJ for the, to have the audience think, oh, well, see, okay, AJ is just a bro. He's not so bad. But what I think they did really well was that the filmmakers kept the attention on AJ's shittiness with the way that he pushes Tesh off the building to save himself. Yeah. And that kind of simple kind of decision in terms of the film, I could see our reviewer might not like him having done that because they wanted to see him and Tess work together and get out of there. I thought that decision prevented the film from having that sort of falling into that trap where AJ is then sort of redeemed or seen as not such a bad guy when really, no, he is a bad guy. Just because this other person is an utter monster does not take away the fact that AJ is a shitty person. And by having his you know, his shitty character revealed yet again in that way at the end, I think helped them avoid that danger. Yeah. And I think it says a lot about the, I think there's a larger statement there about, I I, I understand saying this as a white man, it might sound disingenuous, but how, you know, at least certain white men, when, when the chips are down, their decision will always go towards their own self-interest, you know, because he's working with Tess and Tess obviously is a black woman. But when the chips are down, everyone gets thrown under the bus so he can continue living his shitty life and he will keep justifying and, and making it right in his head, never taking any kind of account for the things he's done. And I, I thought it was interesting that despite the fact he's just been tort- tormented by this, this woman in the basement, this sort of yeah, horrible, like deformed, uh, inbred woman, when he finds Frank, who is living in the basement, because he's, and I genuinely think this, because he's another white man, he assumes a kinship. He doesn't even, it doesn't even occur to him, well, why would this guy also be down here? He's clearly living, he's not tied down. He lives here. And it's, it's only, and, and so at first he's like, no, no, we're together in this, you and me, buddy. I mean, when he's going in his, his night table, very obviously he's going to get a gun. I don't know what kind of flaming idiot you have to be to think, oh no, he's, he's got a bunch of smarties in there. He's going to bust out the, uh, the Ferrero Rocher and we're going to have a nice time. No, that's, he's going for a gun. The surprise for me was that he used it on himself and not on, on AJ. But it's only really when he sees what Frank has done, the video evidence of what he's done, that he's disgusted by him. But I think even then, you could argue that he's, what he's seeing is he's seeing himself. He's being forced to look at who and what he is. And instead of taking that on board, he instead runs away from that realization and goes back to being the person he was when he walked in. I was saying, in a sense, when you mentioned that, kind of what occurred to me is, and I, this didn't occur to me on the first viewing, but in many ways, Frank is sort of a manifestation and amplification of AJ's kind of character or soul, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's AJ without the self-justification. You know, he does, he, like, yeah, he's the amplification of what AJ is. He is the, the purest version of that. And again, it, it, AJ is forced to confront that, but instead of, instead of really taking it on board, he just, he just flees from it. And um, the, the, just to divert briefly, the film, or I, I've read that Krager, he, one of his inspirations for the script 
was the book uh, The Gift of Fear by, I believe, Gavin, Gavin DeBecker. And I read that book about 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, and it completely changed how I viewed my interactions with other people, but especially the opposite sex. You know, it, it just, it, it was perspective I didn't have. Because I think it was about 14 years ago I read it. It was perspective I just didn't have. And I think that, you know, the, um, like the, the film evinces that in so many ways. In how it, um, you know, like, especially the escalating series of red flags that Tess kind of marches through in the Airbnb. That, that turn, of course, turns out to be fine. But uh, I've completely lost my point here, Joseph, so continue. Gone, <laughs> gone out of my head. I, was, I thought if I talked my way around it, I'm, no. Right, right. We're talking about Frank and, and AJ and sort of the gift of fear. Um, and I think you were talking about that, and I'm guessing with some of the things with Tess. Right, so right? just briefly, yeah. So uh, that allowed me to see myself in a light I had never seen myself before. And again, not that I've ever been a, a creep, or at least I don't think I have. But still, you know, it, it made me realize there's room for improvement, and there's room to evolve and to be a better, more considerate person. Again, there's a lot of people who will, who will read those things and hear those things, and just a wall goes up. Because in order for them to take anything on board they have to confront the fact that maybe there have been times in their lives when they didn't get it right. And again, I think AJ is that person. Everything we saw about his behavior shows us he's that person. And I think you're right. I think him throwing Tess off at the end uh, just shows us that some, of these, some people can't be saved because they won't save themselves. This is going back a little bit to something you talked about before, the, the appreciation you had for the tonal shift and that they did not turn it into um, sort of a prison sort of film. And I want to just kind of extend that to say, now, I'm not a fan of kind of the torture porn, kind of, you know, the Saw films. I've never sat through any of those. I saw Seven because it's a classic, you know, but I, that's not my thing. You know, with the premise of what we find out really is going on here, there was also the potential, in addition to your concern, is it going to become that prison sort of thing? There's also the potential for it to also be a film that when you see what Frank has done over the years to get into sort of the torture side of things. And I appreciated that they didn't lean into that, that like, you know, when, when AJ sees what's on the, the video recordings, the audience doesn't see it. You hear it, which is disturbing enough. But I, I appreciated the decision. Because, the, you know, they could have leaned into the whole kind of showing the history of what led to the mother from Frank's abuse and torture and everything he did. Instead, they kind of, I wouldn't say dance around it, but they, they show you glimpses of what you need to know to understand what that is and what led to that. And by doing that, you know, if, if they had, if they had leaned as showing those things more, it would have then become more of that torture porn kind of a film, which then puts it in a whole different category and doesn't allow some of the subtlety of the plot twists and the tonal shifts and those kinds of things stand out and let it be the really great film it is, which is something different than that. So I thought that the way uh, they handled that, presenting that as part of the story without showing it to you, allowed the film to shine in the ways that it did. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that goes a long way towards showing empathy on the part of the filmmakers. You know, and, and again, I think the fact he was inspired by Gift of Fear, that also has, some, you know, has, I think that says a lot about where he's coming from it as a person. Because again, I don't think you read that book and internalize the message unless you, you have some measure of empathy. And now, now I don't know much about Zach Gregor. I listened to some interviews with him. He seems like a decent guy. You know, he seems like someone who has, you know, empathy and, and consideration. So that, you know, I, I imagine where that's coming from. And yeah, I mean, comparing to like sort of comparing it to Saw, I mean, I, I always like to say the first Saw film is actually a masterpiece. The first Saw film is brilliant. Everything that came after it, I'm not a fan. I've seen Saw, the, I've seen the first three and I saw Spiral, uh, which came out, I think, last year. I only enjoy the first, enjoy might not be the right word, but I think the first saw genuine masterpiece. Again, everything after that just became that sort of, quote, torture, torture porn. And yeah, I was relieved when it didn't head that direction. Even though there was some extreme violence in the film, it didn't linger on it. 
You know, for example, when the, when the homeless man, when his arm is ripped off, I mean, sure, they, they stick with it, but it's almost, um, it's almost a comedy beat because it's so over the top. Reminds me a little bit from Dust Till Dawn. Exactly, right? yeah. It, it reminded me a little bit of uh, also of Adam Green's Hatchet films, which are, you know, slasher comedies. They're not spoofs, they're, they're comedies. And, you know, there's scenes in some of those where the gore is so over the top, I, I, I couldn't help but laugh. You know, there's, I think it's Hatchet 2. These two men are killed at the same time with the same chainsaw. And it's just so ridiculous, you, you can't help but laugh. And again, I, I thought the film had moments where it was funnier than I expected. So, different direction. There was some interesting interactions between Tess and the police officers. I thought those interactions, it, it caught me off guard a little bit at first, but then I was like, okay, no way, of course. They're in this community. You see a woman of color who is disheveled, shaken, and they're in a community with lower socioeconomic status, so they kind of, you know, kind of a little condescending and don't really trust her and, or believe her. And, and I, I did think it was um, an interesting critique of law enforcement in communities that are of lower socioeconomic status and communities of color, and certainly there's a larger conversation about that. So I appreciated the critique, but something about it didn't feel quite believable to me. And I think for me, what I think it was is while Tess was shaken and disheveled and, and such, to me, she didn't come across as strung out. She come across to me as someone who was shaken, right? And for whatever criticisms one might levy at law enforcement, um, and that again is a whole other conversation. I do think officers typically interact with enough people in those situations that I think they understand and know the difference between someone who's high or strung out versus recognizing someone who's shaken and maybe uh, you know, in shock. And I think officers typically know the difference and they treat her. To me, I saw a woman who was shaken, but not, didn't look like she was act, wasn't acting high, strung out, drunk or anything, but they treated her that way. And I just think law enforcement officers interact with those populations on both sides enough, people who have been through something shocking and people who are strung out, that they, they can typically tell the difference. I don't know. What are I your mean, thoughts on I that? I sort of thought it worked just within the, the sort of the, uh, I don't want to say heightened reality of the film, it's sort of the, the uh, different reality of the film, Every, the kind of exaggerated reality of the film. Because obviously the, the, the mother character surviving the various injustices done to her, I mean, that's, that's slasher movie stuff, right? That's not real life stuff. So I think it, it, within the context of the film, it, it worked for me. And I, I think the, the way the interaction started more than anything went a long way towards helping me buy it. And that was the officer saying to her, ma'am, get your hands off the vehicle. And I, I think having them open the interaction by focusing on establishing their authority and establishing the integrity of something so meaningless as, you know, a car door, I think that went some direction or some way for me to making it a little more believable. Is this really how it goes? Well, I mean, this isn't really anything. This, this is a movie. Uh, certainly the law enforcement conversation is a, is a deep one. I'm not, I'm not going to get into it because I, I'm sympathetic to both sides of that. You know, I, I have friends who are law enforcement. Uh, my wife, you know, her career was mostly in law enforcement when I, she was in law enforcement when I met her. However, I have had strongly negative interactions with the police in situations where I've done nothing wrong and there was an assumption of guilt. Uh, I have friends who were, quite frankly, framed by corrupt police in order to protect someone else. So I see both sides of that. Again, I, I think we have to accept it with heightened, re heightened reality. Yeah. Anyways, within the framework of the film, I think it, I think it works because we need her to be helpless and you know, Detroit has this reputation, uh, whether it's earned or not, I don't know. I mean, I was reading on Reddit, some people have said it's not as bad as it used to be. Again, I don't know. Although, funny enough, I only live two hours away from it now, so I guess I can go find out. I think the term you're looking for is hyper-reality. We used that, we talked about that little social theory in one of our episodes. Oh, back. I didn't know there was, it was I didn't know there was going to be a, a questionnaire, Joseph. There is a review and then an exam, so um, yeah. Um, within the, the hyper-reality of the film, I get that. And maybe I look at it as a sociologist who, who's looking at how do these interactions, what I think they would typically take place in reality. And in reality, I think the officers would recognize, identify the difference. Um, within the film, it's reality. I think that makes sense. It, I guess for me, it felt a little bit like a caricature 
kind of drawing of this dynamic played out. But a lot of films do that, right? That's that's how a lot of films present reality. Sometimes in ways that are a little hand I, mean, I, I guess you could argue it goes some way towards establishing a theme of systems breaking down, but rec- refusing to recognize that they've broken down. You know, you think about the, for example, this house. I mean, it, it's technically run by a property management firm, but they rented it out to two separate people. And there's no accountability. And the owner of that property is a disgraced television actor who lives in, in California. So there's no matter how far you down you go, there's no accountability. There's no one to back you up. You, you're, you're kind of on your own. It's you versus the system. You are automatically in the wrong. You know, it, it doesn't matter if two people turned up to the Airbnb, they've got your money, you're not getting it back. And I, it's sort of, I, I felt like the interaction with the police reinforced that because you are not, there's the system, there's the police, there's the machine, and then there's you. And I think especially with Tess as, as a black woman and the fact that the cop, one of the cops was black, you know, but he was also a man. It was two men. And I think that, again, singled her out more and showed, again, this machine that is indifferent to human suffering. It, I mean, it responds to human suffering because obviously they have to leave to go to a, like a shooting. But it's almost, again, it's not like someone is shot or someone is in trouble. There has been a shooting. The machine is responding to the stimulus. It doesn't necessarily care. You know, they're not going to show any more humanity or kindness when they go there than they were to Tess. So I, I think if you looked at it from that angle, uh, I think there's something there. Interesting. Yeah. What did you think of, uh, of the mother as sort of as a monster or creature, whatever you want to call it, the big, bad, evil. Creature I mean, she was horrifying. She was effect- effectively horrifying, uh, played by a man, I believe. Yes. Um, what was his name? Michael yes. Matthew Patrick Davis. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, horrifying, very like physically, she was a slasher villain. I mean, and the further the film goes, the further it gets from reality. That you know, I saw Derek had a comment about the one of the least realistic things is that she kept going into the the darkness in the basement. She kept going deeper into the underground. I bought her going through the first door, but after that, no black woman would have kept going screaming guy or not. I wouldn't have gone through there, dude. I would not have gone. I would be leaving that building as soon as she came up from the basement and said to me, "There's like a, there's a basically a gross porn set down in the basement." I'm gone. Um, but yeah, the film gets less realistic. And again, I, I think that's kind of, well, I won't say it's intentional. Krager has said he didn't, he didn't outline this. He just kind of wrote him, like allowed it to the flow of the story itself to dictate where it goes. I, I do think there is some intention there where, because again, you get sort of further into the fantastical and, and at that point she is, a, she's a horror movie villain. She again, tears a man's arm off. I wonder if there's something to be said for the notion that the villain is, pardon me, a, vil- a villain who is a white woman, a villain who is a white woman who has herself been the victim of male violence and has instead turned that violence on the world. She, you know, she can't exercise her power against him because she could easily rip Frank's head off, but she doesn't. So instead she turns that violence on the world and abuses her, her I mean, she doesn't have much power, but she has enough to keep someone hidden in her basement. And so I, I don't know that, that was intentional, but it, it did occur to me. I thought she was, in a weird way, one of the more sympathetic figures in the film. Obviously, she was the result of and victim of what Frank had been doing. And she just wanted to mother <laughs> based on a combination of the really kind of really messed up sort of genetics that she had and the absolutely abhorrent environment and the the lack of any kind of real nurturing other than a video that she had like she was born and to be a monster and and socialized or lack of social interaction she was had an environment that turned her into a monster it was not a pure evil creature it was a creature that was born to be this way and then put in an environment this way and wanted to mother but had no idea of what connection really means or what any of that means. So became angry, right? Remember, Tess is like, don't make her mad, right? Don't be loud. Just drink from the bottle. Um, so, you know, right to the end, she just wants to mother Tess and Tess, you know, puts her out of her misery, so to speak. Um, so it was a really interesting 
sort of kind of characterization for me in being really actually kind of a sympathetic figure in certain ways. And you see that like, of course, you know, in this hyper real world, this is what she was going to become. Yeah. And I, I think, I think that works on multiple levels, right? Because, you know, Frank is the, the source evil, you know, none of this happens without Frank, but he has socialized and created a monster. And while she, she may have reasons, it's not her fault. She ended up the way she is. She is still the violent party. She's still the one enacting the violence. I think that's relevant because I think there are a lot of people in the world who, through bad programming or whatever, they do bad things. And I mean, it's their fault because they did it. You know, I don't, I'm not a big fan of this sort of line of thinking that, well, you know, your upbringing influences who you are, therefore you're not responsible for what you've done. I think that's, that's, we can't, we just can't live that way. But I, I, I think you have to take that into consideration. You have to understand why someone does something but you can't necessarily forgive them just because of that. And I think, I think she's a really great example of that, right? Like she's not a shark because a shark is born a shark. A shark is made to be a predator. That's what a shark does. And, and I do think there are people in this world who are sharks. I do think there are people who are born predators and because we're an animal, right? There's no animal species out there that they're all great people, you know, and maybe capybaras, but there's, there's always some kind of aggressive behavior. There's always outgroups. There's, you know, there's always predators. And so I think it's the same with people. I think there are groups who are, no, I shouldn't say groups, but there are people, there are individuals who are always going to be predators. And you could argue that's Frank. Maybe, maybe that's Frank. Frank is, you know, a predator. He has created this, this sub-villain, the sub-predator through environmental means. And again, whether or not we understand why she is that way, she is that way. I mean, you, you could argue that AJ, it might be an example of this. I mean, again, he's from a different, uh, different era than Frank. And I was, I was thinking about this when he was drunkenly basically confessing to his crimes to the fellow in the bar. You know, he basically says, well, you know me, when I'm trying to get with someone, I don't, I don't say no, I don't give up. And I grew up in an era where that was, that in media, that was shown as noble. That was the way you courted someone. You didn't say no. You, you know, you, you, the, the movies showed that you, well, she says no, that means she wants to be convinced. And thankfully, again, I, didn't grow, like I had better messaging in my environment. So I didn't internalize that. Uh, well, I shouldn't say I didn't fully internalize that. I, I think there is always this sort of internal voice that says, well, maybe you're, you know, I mean, I'm married, I don't have to worry about this shit so much. But, you know, before there, I think there was this notion that, well, maybe, maybe you should be that person. Maybe that's what a real man would do, right? And that worry can supersede any kind of rational thought, right? Because again, it, the messaging, it both, you know, sort of subliminal and just in your face is so much in that direction. So you could argue that AJ grew up in that fishbowl and thus became what he is. And you, you could even say that's why he was so repelled by what he saw Frank do on those tapes because he was, his was a created evil, whereas Frank's was an original evil. And for, you know, the, maybe there is a difference between these two things. But again, that doesn't make him noble. That doesn't make him better. It just it just marks him from what Frank was. Yeah, and I think some of what you're talking about, you know, the in when I t I teach sociology courses. Oh, do you? Uh, yeah, did I mention I have a PhD? No, this is fresh information. <laughs> um, one of the first things I establish in one of the first lectures I give is sort of the, what I call this relationship between agency and structure. You know, the how we as individuals have agency to make decisions, and that's part of our experience. But there's also these environmental structures that also influence our experiences. And it's a complicated relationship. And you, you talked about sort of that, well, not blaming the environment for who you become, but also still recognizing sure. it played a role in who you become. And it's, it's a complex interaction between those two. And sometimes one may have more influence. I think, you know, like mother was, was again, like, was heredity and environment creating, you know, you talked about some people are sharks. Her character was like a canine that had been tied to a stake and beaten to become violent. Right. And I don't think she had much, she had very little agency if based on her diminished kind of cognitive abilities, maybe none, little to none. AJ had more agency. Yeah, agreed. Right. He had more ability 
to think critically about how he was socialized. Yeah. And didn't actually, <laughs> you know, just sorry, just um, jump yeah. in there for a second. I just realized there was a little note about AJ's history when he's brushing his, when he's flossing his teeth, when he's speaking to his mother and she mentions that her, that she and her father are really keen to see him. And he pauses and he says, dad said that. And there is a clear need for uh, male affection that he clearly doesn't have. You know, whenever, uh, quite often when people talk about daddy issues, it's used to sort of take shots at women, but men have these as well. And I, I think that gives us some clue as to how he became the person he is. Again, doesn't excuse him, but it, it helps us understand where the person came from. Yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Again, um, those environmental things matter and your decisions and how you interact with those matter. And then we get AJ. You know, you have someone like, though, Frank, who I think that level of evil is, I think there's probably something broken in the wiring with, a, with right, that's, that becomes next level. That is not to take away the agent. That is not to uh, say there is an agency or responsibility, obviously, but that, like, there is something broken in a person who does that, does what he yeah, does. Yeah, and, and not to get into the, like, the too much into the crime and punishment conversation, but I think with people like that, because again, I do think there are people who are predators, who are just, that is what they are. And you can argue that, you know, there's something broken in the wiring, or just that, again, they're always going to be like nature produces a certain number of predators and certain numbers of prey. And I, again, I don't think that excuses the behavior, but I think that should be used in how we assess the way we deal with them. Because I, I think there are some people who, you know, they have, for the good of everyone, they have to remain locked up. You know, you can't say, well, you know, we, perhaps this person could be re rehabilitated. I do think, you know, there are issues with recidivism. And I think that, you know, it's to some degree involves, like it has a lot to do with the way we structure prison. But I think some people are always going to go back, or end up back there or end up pulling that direction because I think they are built a certain way. And I want to say just shout out to Richard Brake, who at this point uh, doesn't even have to try to be menacing. He just, he's just got the, this expressionless, terrifying face that he can do. And, and what's funny is I've actually seen him be funny. If he's in uh, Rob Zombie's The Munsters, and he's actually very funny. I, and I remember thinking as I was watching that film, and I might be one of the five people on earth who liked that movie. He's, yeah, he's funny. And I remember thinking, boy, I wish he had more opportunity to flex those muscles because he can play Frank in his sleep, which is not to say he was sleepwalking through it. He certainly wasn't. But, you know, he is just so good at playing psychos that uh, I'd love to... He doesn't get. He doesn't seem to get many opportunities to to play against type. But I, I would like to see that more. I mean, I think that you could. That's similar to the the casting of Bill Skarsgård, right? The the right actor that brought the right dynamic to the character without having to be over the top to do that. I, absolutely. Really, the, the last thing I have is just on this film is I thought the acting and everything was just outstanding, especially the acting. I mean, from top to bottom. Everyone was cast really well, played their roles really well. Um, really just, just a high quality yeah. film. Oh, yeah. I, I think, again, Georgina Campbell, her performance was, was so good that it's almost easy to not appreciate how good it was. There was a moment where she's going down the stairs trying to find Keith. And it's one of the few times she really starts to crack. It's kind of fascinating because she sort of you see how much she's attached to Keith already, just as, a, as, a, as another human in this crazy situation. And when she's screaming for him, there is this unexpected desperation and that she just, she just lets out in little bursts. And it's so effective because she has up to this point been so calm, more or less calm and collected. And it's, it's almost unnerving a little bit to hear this person we've seen, again, so far mostly keep it together, suddenly start like hitting these these little, these little pockets where the desperation is, is, is shining through. And I, I just, I love the hell out of that. Uh, for me, the, the last couple of things I wanted to say was, were really just technical notes. I just, I loved the way this movie looked. From, again, from the opening scene where she pulls up to the house, the lighting was fantastic. 
it manages to both be warm, but also, also threatening and ominous. And every moment in the opening, uh, the opening scenes with her and Bill Skarsgård before she goes to bed, and even after when she wakes up in the night with her door being open, every moment is just shot with this, again, that combination of both warmth and dread. And it was just perfect. And, and, and yeah, the cinematography was done by Zach Cooperstein, and I cannot say enough good things about it. Something else, again, I was surprised when I saw the film it was, I wasn't sure where they shot it. And honestly, it wasn't until I saw the past version of the rundown neighborhood that I thought, okay, this has to be Eastern Europe. Because ordinarily, especially with films shot in Serbia, I can usually tell just by the quality of the lighting that they've shot there. There's something about, specifically films shot in Serbia, there's something about the quality of light. I can almost always go, ah, okay, that's that's Eastern Europe. And the only thing that clued me in in this film was, again, because I realized that entire street had to have been a custom-built set. And I thought the only place they could afford to do that would be Eastern Europe. The only place. But in terms of the, you know, the, the cinematography, the color grading, I never once thought until that point it was shot in Eastern Europe. And not that there's anything wrong with shooting in Eastern Europe. I mean, They've got a thriving film industry. I get, this was, well, actually, I don't know about this, but New Boyana is a massive studio complex in Bulgaria. And that, you know, many, many films have been shot there over the years. Uh, Romania has a, has a thriving film industry, as does Serbia. So again, nothing wrong with shooting there. But often those locations are chosen because of the relative low cost and the availability of high quality local talent. They're shot, they're chosen to double for North America. And quite often, like I said, quite often you can tell. Um, it's just, there's, there's a bit of a tell. Even uh, there was a film shot at New Boyana during Kate Beckinsale it's called, it's called Jolt. It's on Amazon. It, it just, it's so plainly not New York City. It's so plainly a, a, like one corner of a street that is a set of New York City. And again, it, it's all down to how you shoot it. And Barbarian was just so expertly shot and expertly put together. You, you don't even, I wasn't even looking for those kind of seams. You know, you just, you just take it in as, as a whole experience. And I, I loved it. And uh, one, one last thing, this isn't connected to Barbarian, but I will say for a, a purely Bulgarian film, I cannot recommend it enough. If you're weird like me and you like science fiction, check out Phi, that's P-H-I 1.618. Um, again, this is an American production shot in Bulgaria. Phi 1.618 is an entirely Bulgarian film. It is a dystopian science fiction epic, basically. I think it might even be silent, if I'm not mistaken. But it's just great. I saw it when I was in Montreal last year, or earlier this year, actually, and uh, just adored it. So again, if you want to, you want to see a homegrown Bulgarian film in addition to all the stuff that you know, Millennium and New Image are shooting over there, Check out Phi 1.618. Another film that I believe was uh, filmed in at least parts in Bulgaria, Bulgaria was A Christmas Story Christmas. Yes, I think that might have been shot at the new Boyana Studios. Okay. Well, my friend, I think we've covered as much as we can say about, about Barbarian. Do you have any parting thoughts? You know, just that this was a really exceptional film. Um, plus, you know, I wasn't aware of it like you were and really was pleasantly caught by surprise and, and definitely uh, one of the better horror films I've watched in a long time. Yeah. I, again, I, uh, I, the, I, this was the second time I'd seen it. I, I loved it even more this time. I think it's genuinely one of the best horror films I've seen in the last, at least the last five years, possibly longer. Uh, I can't think of anything that equals it in terms of just surprise and mood. No, I, I think Barbarian is spectacular. And if you haven't seen it, folks, even though we've spoiled the hell out of it for a year, I don't know why you're watching this if you haven't seen it yet, but go, go check it out. Here in Canada, it's streaming on Disney+. Plus. Uh, where do you watch it, Joseph? Uh, I believe I watched it on Max. Oh, perfect. Okay, yeah. So it, it's, it's out there. You can stream it for free. And even if you can't, five bucks. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it, it's supported. Supported. I mean, this is technically put out by Disney. Disney's not hurting for cash, but this is quality art. Well, the, one of the few times that uh, a major studio is pushing quality art. So check it out. Pay for it if you can. 
And I think that is going to do it. Thanks so much for joining us. Ren, Derek, we love having you guys. Again, you make this, uh, you make this all worth it. And to everyone else who downloads us, we appreciate the hell out of you too. Yeah, let me do a shout out real quick to my sister, Jessica, who listens to us. So Jessica, if you and your co-workers are watching us, here's a shout out to you. Hello, Jessica and her co-workers. Thank you for listening. Joseph, my friend, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on YouTube at The Cardinal Rule. If you're into NFL football, it's that other thing I do. And I'll also shout out, I've got another channel, The Sociology Professor. Got only a couple of videos on there, but I'm going to be adding stuff. So if you need a little help with social theory, you might find some things on there. And you can find me on Twitter at Jokomo13, J-O-K-O-M-O-1-3. Good stuff. I am on Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd as largely the truth. Really, the only one of those I use steadily, I use Instagram and Letterboxd. I track all my movies on Letterboxd. Feel free to come by, say hi, give me a follow. Uh, my other show is The Ghost Story Guys, of course, co-hosted with Paul Bestel of Mysteries and Monsters. That's where we tell true life stories of the paranormal. We like to say belief is not required. All, we, all you need is a love of good storytelling. And you can find that at ghoststoryguys.com. Everywhere. Find podcasts, live. Don't forget to give us a rate and review anywhere you can. YouTube, iTunes, uh, Spotify, CastBox. Helps bump the numbers. Helps put us in front of more people. Tell your friends, there is no better way to help us grow than to share us with someone, well, share us with someone who you think might enjoy what we do. All the music on this show is composed and performed by Elliot Wilder of The Revenants. You can find more from him at therevenants1.bandcamp.com. Our main theme is Rest in Peace from the album Music from Big Beige. That is also by The Revenants. And again, you can find that everywhere you stream your music. Until next time, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? Let me rest.